Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind. Every Monday night, we are live and local with news, conversation, and culture from this place we call home. Tonight, in honor of Black History Month, we have two important segments. First, we'll examine the racial wealth gap and what solutions are being deployed to eradicate it with Berkeley Law School professor John Powell, Darren Dodson of Illumin Capital, and Tucson Bailey of Uplifting Capital. And second, we'll hear about the latest exhibition celebrating the Black experience at the Museum of African Diaspora. And to kick us off, Chronicle reporter Aldo Toledo will fill us in on what's at stake in the March 5th election. But first, this news. Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind. Later on in this hour, we'll delve into the racial wealth gap with UC Berkeley professor John A. Powell. We'll also discuss solutions with two Bay Area leaders in the impact investing space, Darren Dodson and Toussaint Bailey. They'll share their strategies for using investing as a tool to address this inequity. And we'll also talk to Nia McAllister from the Museum of African Diaspora, or MOAD, who will fill us in on all the latest happenings there. But first, let's turn our attention to the election that's happening on Tuesday, March 5th. Joining us tonight to help us understand what is at stake in this upcoming election is Aldo Toledo, who covers City Hall for the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome to State of the Bay, Aldo. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So Aldo and San Francisco voters on Tuesday, March 5th, are set to decide seven measures, including propositions that concern police staffing, drug screenings for public assistance recipients. There's even a measure on eighth grade math. Meanwhile, moderates and progressives are battling for control of a powerful but I think very little known political group called the Democratic County Central Committee or DCCC. So we want to find out What's at stake with all of these measures? And Aldo, let's start with the battle for control over the DCCC. What exactly is this group and why is control over it so important? Yeah, so the DCCC is essentially the Democratic Party here in San Francisco. Um, and not many people know about it, but every once in a while it becomes a very politicized position. Um, and essentially the moderates and progressives who currently hold control of the body at this point uh, are battling it out uh, essentially so that they can give uh, much coveted endorsements during the uh, election season in November. So whoever controls this body... Uh, will get to issue the endorsements to candidates, um, you know, kind of on their side of the ideological spectrum in some of the supervisor races, for example. Um, so, you know, and for an example, in uh, District 9, um, you one of the uh, supervisor candidates, uh, Trevor Chandler, is running for DCCC as well. A uh, District 5 uh, candidate running against Dean Preston is also running for the DCCC. And, um, and Marjan Philauer, who's uh, going against uh, Connie Chan, is also part of a uh, moderate slate to um, take control of the DCCC. So it's, it, you know, it, it's going to be interesting to see what happens in March. And Aldo, are there any defining issues that would split a progressive from a moderate when it comes to the DCCC elections? Well, you know, I think, um, you know, one of the big issues in this race is the amount of money that's coming into it. Um, and, you know, a lot of progressives sometimes focus on the money influencing politics. 
So, you know, that, that is a big issue. One of the, the things that people uh, kind of don't talk about the DCCC is that they don't have the same um, contribution limits that uh, some of the supervisor races have. So, you know, essentially that means that you can raise as much money to run for DCCC as you want. Um, and then, you know, use that money to build brand recognition, to build ID among uh, likely voters. So that's what, you know, a couple of candidates have been doing, uh, especially uh, Bilal Mahmood, who I mentioned is running in D, uh, District 5, and um, uh, Marjan Philauer, who's running in District 1. Mm-hmm. Uh, both of them uh, have been essentially uh, raising something like $200,000 um, for these uh, C campaigns. So let's talk about the San Francisco ballot measures. I understand Mayor London Breed is looking for some wins, specifically with Propositions E and F. So, Aldo, let's start with the most controversial one on that, Proposition E, which would expand police powers. We know safety is a big issue for voters right now. Can you help us understand what is included in Proposition E? Yeah, so, you know, I first wanted to mention, actually, we the, the San Francisco Chronicle did a poll just to put it into perspective how in danger uh, Mayor Breed is. Uh, we polled 812 likely voters um, and found that the vast majority, 71%, in fact, disapprove of Breed's job performance. Um, and 20% of likely voters say they would rank Farrell, Mark Farrell, uh, former supervisor, as their first choice, uh, or were leaving, you know, leaning toward doing so. So, you know, London Breed it, between now and November really needs to get a few wins under her belt. And she's hoping that props E and F are going to be, you know, that thing that kind of gets voters to, to think of her in November. You know, prop E is a, you know, a, a big, um, number of police reforms, uh, most of them having to do with, as the mayor would say, um, you know, easing the burden on police officers. Um, you know, one of the big uh, issues is reporting on use of force incidents. Um, that would make it so that uh, reporting for a police officer involved in that situation would be less, you know, instead of, uh, you know, four officers doing a, a police report on this, only uh, one would have to do so. Um, and, you know, a- another portion of it is, uh, related to police chases. Um, so this would allow the uh, police department to essentially use a lower justification than it currently does to, uh, initiate a chase with a vehicle on the streets. Um, you know, a- another aspect of it, um, as well is it would allow the police department to set up surveillance cameras across the city. And, um, you know, potentially use drones to do, you know, the kind of police chases that I was talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, uh, the, the, the mayor really believes that this is the way that you can kind of, uh, release some of the, the constraints that the police department currently has in dealing with some of the retail theft that we've seen. But, you know, opponents meant, you know, raise concerns about the fact that it, has a lot uh, of uh, potential negative consequences when it comes to, you know, surveillance of the public and uh, rights to privacy. The danger, of course, that uh, comes with police chases in, you know, an urban area such as San Francisco, like the second densest city in the country. Um, you know, so so there's definitely, you know, different camps on this issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, it sounds like a, a, a sort of a laundry list of potential 
public safety measures that police may be interested in having. We'll see how voters respond given their concerns around safety. But I did want to ask you about Proposition F as well, which would require drug screening for people who receive public assistance. Can you describe a bit about what Mayor Breed hopes to accomplish with that measure? Yeah, essentially she hopes that, um, you know, that will get some of the folks that are currently refusing to get into shelter or treatment uh, to do so or to make it a part of the process if they are going to receive, um, you know, public assistance. So there's currently, you know, a city program that gives people, uh, you know, a certain amount of money uh, in, in general assistance. Um, and um, that would, you know, this isn't like a drug test or, or anything like that, but it is kind of, you know, if there's a reasonable suspicion that the person uh, is addicted to drugs or has substance use issues, um, then, you know, that the, there would be a screening process to determine whether that person should continue to receive these uh, city funds. We're talking to Aldo Toledo, cover City Hall for the San Francisco Chronicle about some of these upcoming measures on the election on Tuesday, March 5th. Aldo also wanted to ask you about Proposition B, which would set minimum police officer staffing levels I know there's been a controversy with this measure since some say it's actually a tax hike. Can you describe a bit more about this one? So, you know, that's slightly misleading. So, you know, the idea is that um, it would be either using a current tax uh, for that purpose and, you know, essentially redoing the priorities of a current tax uh, that the city has and diverting it to police the police staffing issue. Um, or, uh, you know, like raising new taxes, for example, specifically for this, this issue. So, you know, right now we're missing something like 400 police officers. Um, I will note that the San Francisco does have a relatively large police department when it comes to urban areas of our size. Um, and especially in comparison to other major cities. Um, but, you know, th- this became a really contentious issue in a little known committee in City Hall, the Rules Committee. Um, you know, essentially Matt Dorsey, a supervisor from uh, the South of Market, um, you know, put up this measure at first and then it was, he says, hijacked, uh, quote unquote, by uh, Supervisor Asha Safai, who is currently running for mayor. So this is essentially Asha Safai's measure. And, you know, you'll see that Matt Dorsey and some of the more moderate elements of City Hall are going against this measure. Well, let's turn to affordable housing. We just have a couple minutes left here. I know that's a big concern, just Bay Area-wide. Proposition A would allow San Francisco to issue a $300 million bond to build more affordable housing. This is on top of what voters have already approved, which was the $315 million bond back in 2015, another $600 million bond in 2019. Do you feel that another $300 million bond is going to make much of a difference when it comes to our housing crisis? What do you you think voters need to know about this proposition? Yeah, you know, I think uh, this is uh, this would add $300 million uh, general obligation fund to that list uh, that you just mentioned. Um, And it is very much a part of the kind of iterations of of that uh, those two previous bonds. Um, You know, so this is this is one in, in several parts. And, you know, essentially 240 million of that 300 would go toward building housing that's currently in the pipeline. That's about 1500 units. And then 30 million will go to rehab existing units, 30 million to house uh, people experiencing things like street violence, domestic violence, et cetera. Um, and, you know, it's not going to raise your taxes or anything. So you see a lot of uh, support from this from both the mayor, the entire board of supervisors, 
you know, the labor council groups that often are, you know, fighting each other in city hall. I'd also note on this topic of housing that Marin voters will be deciding on the fate of measure D, which would limit rent increases. Can you talk more about this rent control measure and what it might portend perhaps for other counties? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, we have seen over the past few years, uh, several uh, of these measures going, um, you know, in different cities. I, I covered uh, Mountain View and at the San Jose Mercury News and, and they have, you know, uh, been dealing with this issue since uh, 2017 when they passed their um, rent control measure. I think it just shows that it, it's very much more in the conversation than it was maybe 15, 20 years ago. And that even a place like, you know, in, in Marin County would consider something like this. Absolutely. Well, before we let you go, Aldo, just real quick, if you can remind listeners where and how they can cast their votes, we want to make sure people can get out on Tuesday, March 5th. Yeah, well, you know, I can tell you about my favorite place to cast my vote, which is the basement of City Hall at the Department of Elections. So you can always go there. Uh, But, you know, if you want to learn more, SF uh, has, you know, uh, websites that can tell you exactly where to go. Um, So the Department of Elections can kind of show you uh, what the closest uh, polling booth is to you. Well, the basement of City Hall seems very appropriate, but we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us. Aldo Toledo, City Hall reporter with the San Francisco Chronicle. Really appreciate you coming on and explaining all these measures to everybody. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And coming up next on State of the Bay, we're going to talk about the racial wealth gap and innovative solutions on how we can close it with three Bay Area experts. That's right after the break, so stay with us. Hey, this is One Way Possible, your fellow music traveler. Join me weeknights from 8 to 10 p.m. as we cross genres, generations, and go all across the musical map, discovering forgotten favorites, future favorites, and all the journeys in between. That's Monday through Friday nights, 8 to 10 p.m., right here on 91.7 KALW and KALW.org. Join us for the ride. This is SUNY Khaled, news editor here at KALW. In case you missed it, a recent survey shows that BART ridership and passenger satisfaction are rebounding to pre-pandemic levels. And a Stanford University study has found that a tool used to measure the impact of pollution on certain neighborhoods has some serious flaws. You can hear these stories, as well as others from our partners at NPR, by logging onto our website at KALW.org. Meanwhile, keep your dial set on 91.7 or KALW. Welcome back to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind. We want you to be part of this next conversation about the racial wealth gap and how racial bias shows up in the investing world. Do you have an experience to share about feeling left out of the wealth creation in this country? Are you an underrepresented entrepreneur who has struggled to get funding? We want to hear from you. You can give us a call. We're at 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. You can also find us on social media, or you can email us at stateofthebay at kalw.org. So in honor of Black History Month, we here at State of the Bay are hosting conversations around issues that significantly impact people of color. And tonight, 
we want to dig into the racial wealth gap. And we're honored to be joined by three experts who can help us understand how we got here and also help us explore solutions to eradicating this issue. So first, let's welcome Professor John A. Powell, who is the director of UC Berkeley's Othering and Belonging Institute. Professor Powell is also a professor of law, African-American studies, and ethnic studies at UC Berkeley, where I work, although Professor Powell was booked independently by our producer, Katie Colley. Professor Powell is an internationally recognized expert in the areas of civil rights, structural racism, housing, poverty, and democracy. Welcome to State of the Bay, Professor Powell. It's good to be here. Um, looking forward to the conversation. Absolutely. We're very pleased you could join us. And we're also pleased to welcome Toussaint Bailey, who is the founder and CEO of Uplifting Capital, a minority-owned impact investing firm based here in the Bay Area. And I also have to disclose, Toussaint is actually a law school classmate of mine, also independently booked by our producer, Katie Colley. But Toussaint, very glad you could join us on State of the Bay. I'm grateful to be part of the conversation. And we also are pleased to be joined by Darren Dodson. Darren is the managing director of Illumin Capital, which is a Black-owned black and led fund manager working to eliminate racial and gender bias in investing. So welcome, Darren. Hi, it's wonderful to be here. So let me kick this off by offering a quote from the Federal Reserve Board. And the board wrote, and I quote, data shows longstanding and substantial wealth disparities between families in different racial and ethnic groups. The typical white family has eight times the wealth of the typical black family. And so this is the racial wealth gap that we're going to be digging into tonight. And Professor Powell, let me start with you. Can you, can you just help us understand how we got to such a disparity between wealth held by white families versus black families in this country? Well, it has been consistent in American life uh, since we started measuring wealth that there's been dis disparity. Um, and it makes sense when you think about it because wealth is some way we're measuring how you show up in society. And for much of our history, blacks didn't show up as full citizens, didn't show up as full people. In some cases, weren't allowed to own property. Was property themselves couldn't couldn't borrow money on the same terms as whites were consigned, and all of this is in some ways still going on. One of the things that's most interesting and disturbing is that since we passed the civil rights laws in the 1960s, things have gotten worse. Uh, so there's been some progress. I mean, we made a lot of progress right after the Civil War, uh, but for the last 50 years. We're either treading water or moving backwards. This is ex extremely the case of COVID. Um, the COVID pandemic, among other things, really stripped the Black community of wealth. And then, of course, we had uh, financial crisis and subprime lending crisis, which had a disproportionate impact on the Black community as well. So we have all these mechanisms in place that no longer require a bull Connor or a racist white person or racist anybody. Uh, they're in place unless we do something they will self-perpetuate in perpetuity. Well, Professor Powell, I think a lot of people might be surprised to hear that since civil rights laws were passed, that we haven't made significant progress on the racial wealth gap. And it sounds like based on what you're saying, we're even moving backwards. You mentioned a few events that may have hit uh, black residents in this country harder than other racial groups. Can you offer any theories as to why it is that even after the civil rights era, we still are struggling uh, to make progress on this issue. 
Yeah, there are a number of reasons. I mean, part of it is civil rights. Many of the civil rights laws were compromises. And so they weren't really designed to accomplish what we might think they were designed to accomplish. They weren't designed to end racial stratification, for example. They were more processed things. I had a conversation with someone earlier today, and I said, the goal is not to remove structural impediments. The goal is to make structures work for us to achieve what we want to achieve. But let me give you a concrete example. Um, Blacks doing COVID and shortly after, they made progress in terms of income in relationship to whites and even in terms of jobs, but they lost ground on wealth. Uh, And it's really important to distinguish between income and wealth. Um, So Blacks are overrepresented in the housing industry, even though they pay what's called a segregation tax. So if you're Black, you most likely don't own a home. And if you do own a home, uh, it's more likely not going to appreciate the same as a white home. Uh, Blacks are are more likely to be homeowners than to be investors in the stock market. Uh, So whites actually picked up ground because whites are more likely to be investors in the stock market. So the stock market exploded uh, towards the end of COVID uh, and it created a lot of new wealth. That wealth is not going to black people, it's going to white people. And so you may say, why are more black people involved in the stock market? Well, to invest in the stock market either is through your job, a certain type of job, or you have discretionary money. If you don't have discretionary money, you're not going to invest in the stock market. So there are all these things coming together. And there's some complexity, but there's also um, a willingness in our society not to invest in black people. And so, um, and I assume the other guests will talk about this. There was uh, an effort by black women to invest in other black women, and they were sued, saying that's racist. You can't invest in black women, uh, even though black women are far behind, and even though the amount of money was small, consider how much we invest. So once we have this system in place, uh, anytime you try to help black people, uh, there's oftentimes a crying in the file that we're supposed to be colorblind. We're not supposed to notice one group over another. Well, I think that's a perfect segue, Professor Powell, to Toussaint and Darren, who I know both believe that impact investing is an effective tool for creating more wealth in communities that have historically been left out of the wealth creation in this country, and specifically it's people of color. And Darren, let me start by asking you, if you can just explain what impact investing is, what what that term means, and why you think it's effective for creating positive social change. Well, impact investing and it's investing to impact and transform communities and their various different verticals, transformative environmental technologies or health technologies. And, um, you know, essentially you're investing to create positive impact in the world. Um, As a, you know, context builder, we tried uh, investing to maximize profit and that got us slavery. Um, so in, investing in it with an impact lens for positive impact that's um, looking at overlooked and underestimated communities is a powerful way to address um, some of the underlying issues of the racial wealth gap, but also some of the underlying issues that we're describing in terms of healthcare systems and disparities that we see, education systems and um, disparate outcomes and looking at the uh, issues within financial inclusion that have been described by Professor Powell 
in terms of um, predatory lending, other issues. So uh, that's a little bit about impact investing and why I think it's an imperative to think about it as a um, a mainstay within the strategies of all um, investment firms. And Darren, can you give us an example of what an impact investment might look like just from your, your firm's experience? An impact investment could be a company that's an education technology company that's enabling kids to read in a classroom in a democratized way. Sometimes the teachers, um, both black and white teachers, can exhibit biases in the classroom. Um, they may um, lean towards kids that can read faster or lean towards kids of a certain race or demographic. And when you introduce uh, a technology system, it, sometimes the technology system can understand which kids are reading uh, at grade level, below grade level, and give them the exact um, kind of reading level that they're at, helping each kid to reach their full potential in a systematic way um, and augment a teacher to see or view or have a mirror for their own biases so that they can address them and help each student kind of reach their full potential. So that might be an example of impact investment. Of course, if the technology exacerbates the bias through machine learning and AI algorithms and um, and, and codifies the mind of the teacher in a way that applies it in a biased way, then you have a big problem. And thus, Illumin Capital and the work that we do is to um, work with our fund managers or investors or companies that we invest into to ensure that that's done in a you know positive orientation and addressing these biases to unlock impact and economic value. Darren, I appreciate you giving us some specificity there just so we can really wrap our heads around what that term means. Toussaint Bailey, your firm, Uplifting Capital, works in private equity where you invest in private companies that are founded by women and people of color. I think most people have a certain image when they think of a Silicon Valley founder, maybe that stereotypical tech bro. I'm wondering if you can share just how that bias might impact founders of color when they're trying to raise money. Yeah, so it, it impacts at a number of levels. And so I think one of the one of the um, things that you'll hear uh, Darren talk about, I'd imagine, is at the investor level, um, the underrepresentation of money in the hands of people of color to invest in those founders uh, results in an under uh, capitalization of those founders because black and brown founders, female founders tend to invest at greater levels in, or black and brown investors tend to invest at greater levels, excuse me, in black and brown founders. Um, and so that's one of the impacts. Another impact is, you know, taste bias or the assumption that a black and brown founder will underperform even by someone who's inclined to invest in those founders. And then we, we've seen a, a greater sort of punishment for failure of black and brown founders and black and brown investors uh, than we see of their white counterparts. And so um, second chances uh, don't appear at the same rate for uh, black and brown founders. And for us uh, at Uplifting Capital, we actually see these underestimations, overlooking or, or under service of certain communities as a value creation opportunity um, across all sorts of investors. Uh, what they call alpha or, or outsized returns are found by recognizing an imbalance, recognizing a gap and filling that gap. And in impact investing, there's a number of ways and a number of places where you can find impact aligned with financial return. And so that could look like a founder who's incredibly talented, 
and, and improperly evaluated because of racial bias. Uh, that could look like a founder who's incredibly talented and can't get access to capital because that's not in his or her network. And so uh, uh, for, for us, solving those problems is a source of value creation, but they certainly um, exist across a number of different verticals, whether that's real estate and, and thinking about investing in affordable housing solutions, whether that's uh, private equity and mature businesses that are well capitalized and cash flowing and looking for ways to expand, but can't find that expansion capital because the founders of those businesses or the leaders of those businesses are not seen as having the ability to take the next leap or whether that's an early stage founder who's just seen as not founder material for exactly the sort of profile that you just talked about, Ethan, uh, that that classic Silicon Valley uh, savior profile that we've we've actually seen get us in trouble in the opposite way in, in recent years with uh, founders being sort of under diligenced on one side and, and over scrutinized on another side. Well, it's super interesting to Sot that actually taking these examples of bias, of racial bias, and thinking of them as actually a business opportunity to help address the problem in the first place. So this is State of the Bay on local public radio, 91.7 KALW, San Francisco Bay Area. I'm Ethan Elkind, and we're discussing the racial wealth gap and how impact investing might help work to decrease it. We're very pleased to be joined by Professor John A. Powell, Director of UC Berkeley's Othering and Belonging Institute, also Professor of Law, African American Studies and Ethnic Studies at UC Berkeley, also joined by Toussaint Bailey, founder and CEO of Uplifting Capital, and Darren Dodson, Managing Director of Illumin Capital. And we want to hear from you. We'd love to hear you join this conversation with your questions. Do you feel like you've been left out of wealth creation in this country? Do you think racial bias shows up in how people evaluate investments? We'd love to hear from you. You can join the conversation by calling 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. And you can also email us at stateofthebay at kalw.org. Well, Professor Powell, we just heard a bit from Darren and Toussaint about their belief, how impact investing can help create more wealth among people of color. I'm just wondering if you agree with that, what your thoughts are in reaction to their their business models here. Well, I certainly agree. I mean, I think, um, you know, what we saw in the, in the case of subprime loans, and actually I wrote a book looking at subprime loans. Subprime loans, in a sense, you could say, was almost like impact investment. What, what the markets looked at was that um, Black neighborhoods were undercapitalized for mortgages. Uh, and so we came up with a whole new tool subprime loans uh, and sent them to the black community, uh, which on its face wasn't a bad thing, but people weren't validated. So you didn't have to have a job. And uh, and also there's a whole thing about the, the loans being securitized so they moved very quickly. But what they saw was that the white community had already been saturated in terms of mortgages. And so where's the growth possibility? Uh, well, it was in the black community. Uh, and if they had done it right, it would have turned out differently. So you have to not only identify the opportunity, but then you have to invest in it appropriately. Um, and so I think impact investment is a really important part of it. Uh, but I also think government is an important part of it. Uh, and my friends, uh, Sandy Darity and Derek Hamilton, have been pushing baby bonds, uh, to which are now getting an uptick. Um, and the early indication is they work. Now, baby bonds are universal. They're not just for Black people. But uh, the way they're doing it, if you're on public assistance, you get uh, more likely to get baby bonds. 
because of how we're segmented in society, it has a disproportionate impact on the black community. And that seems to be okay in the minds of most white Americans. We, we still we still have to wait and see. Um, but I think we have to do a number of things. And I think impact investing is certainly one part of it. I appreciate that take on it. We do have a question from an, uh, from a listener in Modesto. John writes in, I like the idea of using my investments to make a difference, but I don't want to compromise returns since I'm counting on my retirement fund. Is this kind of investing more risky? And Darren, I know your firm, Illumin Capital, is a fund manager that's seeking to address racial and gender equity across investing, but I imagine you're also trying to get a good return. Can you respond to John's question and also talk a little bit about what your uh, firm, Illumin, is doing to eliminate racial bias? Sure. And just for the many of the listeners out there, um, you know, when we think about the asset management business, where it um, becomes real for many people is in their pension funds, their um, retirement funds, um, the various different ways, whether teachers or sanitary workers, um, all of these folks are tied to this broader system. And one of the things about this system is that 1.3% of $82 trillion in capital is managed by women and people of color-led funds. So one of the big questions that we ask as a firm at Illumin Capital is why is that number so low? Um, Because something has to keep it that way. We know that there's uh, managers that we looked at in collaboration with Stanford University professors, uh, including Dr. Jennifer Eberhardt, and we dug into the data And what we found is the higher black fund managers perform after looking at more than 180 asset allocators, the more bias they faced. So that means that people that are out searching for returns left money on the table before they'd invest in black led funds that were outperforming because of cognitive biases. Um, It could be that they're explicit biases But in many of these um, uh, kind of deep dives, what we find is that the prejudice of the people that are doing it is neutral, but the bias is the same, even when they're searching for um, high returns. So that's the um, inter kind of looming capital and the work that we do alongside of so many others. What we're looking for is high performing people that are a little bit upset right now because they've been systematically high performing and looking for opportunities to access more capital and they're being penalized for success. So that is a, uh, an important dimension of looking at impact and ecosystems. In addition to the dimensions of transformative environmental or health tech or ed tech, there's also this dimension of overlooked and underestimated entrepreneurs that if um, provided capital to could Um, address economic value creation within economic portfolios that um, steward a lot of the capital that is in the largest investment that many of the listeners may have, which is their retirements. Well, Darren, it sounds similar in a lot of ways to what Toussaint was talking about, that there is this business opportunity now because of this inherent bias 
within the system. But Toussaint Bailey, I wanted to give you a chance to respond to John and Modesto's question. This basic fear that some people have that their investment returns might suffer. Is that something that you hear when you're talking to people about impact investing? And if so, what's your response to those kinds of concerns? You know, the the assumption that impact investing is concessionary is one that I address almost daily, right? This notion that if you're doing something that's both positive for the planet or positive for people, then somehow it must be bad for uh, the outcomes of your portfolio. And it's absolutely false. And so so one of the examples is, is the one that that Darren gave, we call it inclusion alpha, right? So alpha being um, your your source of performing better than a standard market uh, return. Uh, one of the ways that you can find that alpha is including people who have historically been excluded for irrational reasons. So so bias is irrational um, when it comes to uh, uh, financial returns or a portfolio. So uh, th- that's one way. Closing gaps um, is another way. So you think of things like um, electric vehicles, or you think of uh, Professor Powell's example of the subprime crisis, closing those gaps are, are a source of opportunity. One of the distinguishing factors of, of impact investing, however, I, I have to say for, to the subprime crisis is intentionality. And so the, the intention, in addition to sort of the, the, the outcome or the byproduct of creation, creating a positive um, environmental or, or social good um, is, is tantamount to impact investing or, or is directly connected to impact investing. But uh, for us, Impact investments are are both a source of kind of financial return and also a source of portfolio management. So we work um, primarily with wealth managers who are working with everyday people. We call them the quietly bothered. So these are people who would otherwise be doing something about some of these issues who would otherwise be sort of giving but don't necessarily have an access point. And if you have a, something to put in someone's portfolio that comports to their financial goals, that is on a risk adjusted uh, basis, uh, uh, doing at least as well as traditional market rate investments, um, then that's a great point, not only to move capital. So, so uh, individual investors hold 50% of global capital and they're allocated about 5% uh, to the private markets. And there's this huge value creation opportunity that's happening in the private markets right now. As companies stay private longer, we have fewer IPOs. And so all of these wealth disparities that we're talking about, whether that's housing, uh, whether that's the stock market, all of these things are are uh, products of wealth creation tools. And so I think our, our next major wealth creation tool is in the private markets. And so for us, helping individual investors who are impact minded, who are values aligned minded, uh, move into the private markets without sacrificing their portfolio goals is a major opportunity, not not necessarily a concession. We see it happen with foundations. We see it happen with some of the pensions that, that Darren's talking about. Um, and individual investors are the next group who have the opportunity to move here. And if it doesn't happen with impact, it's going to happen without impact. There's sort of this portfolio shift afoot. It seems like so much of this is really about the outreach, making those connections and, and finding those sort of hidden pots of money and, and those hidden entrepreneurs. So I appreciate you explaining how you approach it through your company. I want to let listeners know this is State of the Bay on local public radio, 91.7 KALW, San Francisco Bay Area. I'm Ethan Elkind, and we're discussing the racial wealth gap and how impact investing might help decrease it. Very pleased to be joined by UC Berkeley professor John A. Powell. Toussaint Bailey, founder and CEO of Uplifting Capital, and Darren Dodson, managing director of Illumin Capital. Would love to hear from you as well. 
are you an impact investor? Have you, do you have a story to tell? Do you have successes that you can talk about or concerns about impact investing? We'd love to hear from you. You can call. The number is 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. You can also email us at stateofthebay at kalw.org. Well, Professor Powell, I know you have written about how seeing the wealth gap as a binary, a white versus black, might still leave many people behind. And as I understand it, you support a theory called targeted universalism. Can you talk about this theory and how it might apply here? Sure. Uh, So we know there are disparities. And one of the interesting things is that how do we make sense of these disparities? Uh, It's not obvious. It's disparities because Black people don't have enough money, Black people are not performing as well, or are there some structural and and, and cognitive problems that's causing it? And so that's a big question. And and, um, John Rawls, in a famous book called Theory of Justice, he said in a society that's organized around equality, when you see persistent and durable disparities, it's to suggest that the system is not working. Suggest. Uh, instead, what we do is if, if Black people are left behind, we've been left behind since the country started, the suggestion is there's something wrong with us, how to fix Black people. Uh, so I think in terms of sort of digging into um, the racial wealth gap, uh, first of all, the country has to have uh, the intention um, and, and there are a lot of opportunities. One Part of the thing in terms of investment, sometimes investment is actually personal or networks. Uh, you go to people who have money to invest in things. Uh, and several years ago, I worked with a group in Cleveland. I can't name the group for uh, uh, privacy concerns, but it was prominent black businesses. And they grew at the same rate as white businesses, even faster to a certain point, and then they stopped growing. Uh, and the question is, why did they stop growing? Uh, and some people suggest, well, it's discrimination. And I thought, well, why did they grow for six or seven years at the same rate? And what it was is that for six and seven years, they used debt uh, to actually grow, and then they needed investment. Um, and they couldn't get investment. They were performing as well as their white counterparts, but they didn't have access to capital. Uh, and part of that was networks. So when we don't have uh, Black people involved, uh, we actually don't have a network uh, to actually call someone up. or uh, So that's part of it. It's not just individuals. The network is too thin. Um, and, uh, and there's some complexity here, which I won't go into, but I'll just say uh, there's a guy named Yancey who says we're moving from a white, non-white society to a Black, non-Black society. And what he's arguing is that at the founding of the country, resources, opportunity was organized around whiteness. That may sound stark, but remember our first immigration law said you could only be naturalized as a a U.S. citizen if you were white. This is written into the law. This wasn't something that, you know, radical that Berkeley made up. And this remained our our practice into the 1950s. Uh, And so... Whiteness was associated with citizenship and belonging. Um, and what Yancey is suggesting now is that we've expanded that, but we're hardening it, hardening it against Blacks. So it's like, anyway, so uh, so even though the, the, it may not be a binary, it may be more complicated, it's not as whiteness and Blackness conceptually is still very important in American psyche. Mm-hmm. Uh, Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you explaining that and providing a bit more context there. We're just uh, almost out of time. We have a couple minutes left. And Darren, I wanted to ask you about an issue that has come up already in this discussion, and that's about home ownership rates. We know uh, there's a big disparity there. Black Americans are at 44.5% versus 74.9% for white Americans. So just very briefly, what strategies do you think should be deployed to open up home ownership opportunities for more people in this country? Yeah, I think it's a, a terrific question. Um, one of my passions has been looking at uh, federal policy and state policy on um, home ownership. And in fact, um, that's rooted also in the asset management business, which of course is part of that $82 trillion in capital. And um, after doing systematic testing of subprime uh, loans, um, the group that I worked with uh, previously, the Center for Responsible Lending, found that about $9.1 billion in fees were being overcharged to Black and Latino homeowners throughout the country on an annual basis. And as a part of that, when we think about the number one way in which um, people reach the middle class in the country, it's home ownership. So a systematic taking away of, of that is not a good thing. And a lot of the largest banks in the country um, systematically did that um, with intentionality. And I think that's a really important thing that didn't make them better or stronger banks for doing that over time because they destroyed an important customer base. But they also um, uh, hurt people's humanity in the process, which is a really uh, not good thing either. So um, thinking about ways that we can move um, uh, assets, um, particularly through the private equity venture and growth strategies that we invest in at Looming Capital and educate those we invest into about how to address these biases such that they can lead to wealth creation rather than wealth destruction is a really important aspect of what we um, work every day to pursue. So we're just about out of time. Tucson, I'm going to let you have the last word, which is to ask you if someone out there is listening and wants to be a part of this movement to help eliminate the racial wealth gap or get involved in impact investing, what would you recommend as a first step? Yeah, so the, the first thing is if you have a wealth manager to talk to you, talk to your wealth manager and put pressure on them. I think there's an increasing recognition of this as a must have rather than a, a nice to have. Um, and then the second thing is just the recognition that to solve problems like the racial wealth gap, there's any number of levers we have to pull. Some of those are government policy. Some of those are philanthropy. But the, the engines that did the most wealth destruction or the wealth disparity creation are the capital markets. And those are the most powerful tools to close that wealth disparity. And so just sort of recognizing that as as a, one of the tools in the toolkit um, is what I would encourage. Absolutely. Well, of course, there's no one single solution to eliminating the racial wealth gap, but really appreciate all three of you coming on tonight to talk about your expertise and your views on what the solutions need to be. That's Professor John A. Powell from UC Berkeley's Othering and Belonging Institute and UC Berkeley Law. Also, Toussaint Bailey, founder of Uplifting Capital, and Darren Dodson, founder of Illumin Capital. Thank you all so much for coming on State of the Bay tonight and talking about this. Can I, can I just interrupt? You asked me about Target Universalism. I didn't get to it. So I would just ask the listener to look that up. I think it is quite important, and I think it's quite important in this environment today. So I'm sorry I didn't have a chance to speak to it. So just look up Target Universalism um, generally or on our website. 
and a lot of things have come up that I think is relevant for this discussion. Absolutely. No, Professor Powell, thank you for that. We'll put some resources up on our website as well, but thank you all so much for coming on State of the Bay. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. And coming up after the break, we'll be joined by Nia McAllister from the Museum of African Diaspora, who will share the latest happenings at the museum. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Josh Landy. And I'm Ray Briggs. On Thursday, March 7th, join us for the next live recording of Philosophy Talk on the Stanford campus. We'll be thinking about Shakespeare's Outsiders with David Sterling Brown, author of Shakespeare's White Others. This event is free and open to the public. Everybody welcome. More information at philosophytalk.org. That's Thursday, March 7th, 7 p.m. at the Stanford Humanities Center. And gentlemen in Stanford now abed shall think themselves accursed they were not here. Welcome back to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind. San Francisco is lucky to be the home of the Museum of African Diaspora, or MOAD, as it is called. MOAD is a contemporary art museum which celebrates Black cultures and hosts conversations about the Black experience. So we're so thrilled to be joined tonight by Nia McAllister, who is a Senior Public Programs Manager for MOAD. So welcome to State of the Bay, Nia. Thank you so much for having me. So, Nia, can you start by telling us about the mission of MOAD and what makes it special? Absolutely. So, kind of as you mentioned, MOAD is a contemporary art museum. uh, And our mission is to celebrate Black cultures, ignite challenging conversations, and inspire learning through the global lens of the African diaspora. And so we're part of the vibrant arts ecosystem here in San Francisco, and we work to platform contemporary artists of the African diaspora, both locally, nationally, and also globally. And Nia, can you tell us about MOAD's current exhibitions? Yeah, absolutely. We have many exhibitions on view, and I'll I'll note that we actually rotate our exhibitions a few times a year. Um, So there's always something new on view, but currently uh, we have the exhibition uh, Text Messages, which features uh, the work of artist Joe Sam. Uh, Joe Sam uh, is actually an artist who was based in the Bay Bay Area for over 40 years. Uh, practicing in the Bayview. And so there's really beautiful, colorful compositions um, that are comprised of found materials that he took from the streets of California and San Francisco. Um, So mixed media paintings. Uh, We have Spectrum on Color and Contemporary Art, and that's a group exhibition that's curated by Kijo Lee, who is MOAD's Chief of Curatorial Affairs and Public Programs. And this group exhibition features the work of 12 multi-generational and international artists, um, they're all exploring the way color influences form and their work. Um, and the exhibition really prompts the viewers to think about how artists use color to guide our perception. And then we have MOAD's Emerging Artists Program, which is a really wonderful program that gives the opportunity to four uh, emerging artists uh, over the course of a year. Uh, each of them have the chance to have a solo exhibition at the museum. And currently we're fe- we are featuring the work of Lishan AZ and her exhibition Eugene's Cove. Uh, which is inspired by the historic incident, um, the 1919 incident where a 17-year-old black boy named Eugene Williams was stoned to death uh, after he floated across the imaginary color line in Lake Michigan. Uh, And so her photography-based exhibition imagines an underwater world uh, where black people um, became something more. So this exhibition uh, celebrates the way that we are reclaiming water as a source of freedom. Well, they sound, they all sound really fascinating, very powerful. Knowing that they're rotating, how much longer can we see them? Yes. So these exhibitions um, will actually be closing on March 3rd. Uh, So you have just a few more days to come see them. So I highly recommend that. 
And then we'll have new shows opening at the end of March on the 27th. So in terms of those upcoming shows, uh, any highlights that uh, you want to flag for listeners? Yes, absolutely. So we have two uh, major exhibitions opening, uh, the first of which is entitled Unruly Navigations. And that's, again, curated by Kijo Lee, our Chief of Curatorial Affairs and Public Programs. Uh, this is a group exhibition as well with over nine artists, um, but there'll be over 40 artworks and four site-specific installations. And these artists are working across various mediums and geographies. Um, An exhibition is really exploring um, the nonlinear movements of people, cultures, ideas, religions, and aesthetics that all define diaspora. So we're looking at the diasporic experience from the perspective of the enslaved, the forcibly displaced, and otherwise disenfranchised. And then the other main exhibition that will be opening um, is actually the first U.S. Museum um, exhibition of the artist Rachel Jones. Um, She is a a British visual artist and painter, and her uh, exhibition is entitled Five Exclamation Points. Um, It's sure to be very exciting, um, very bright, colorful pieces. Um, And she's really thinking about how we're subverting language. Um, She is inspired by emojis and cartoons. Um, Both the works are both figurative and abstract um, and inspired by the codecs of Black writers um, and kind of the visual language. So I highly recommend folks to come and visit the museum uh, when we open those exhibitions on March 27th. Well, so I, I, know, I understand the Museum of African Diaspora, MOAD, also has educational programs. Can you talk about any of the highlights there, some of the community conversations you're hosting, the Poets in Residence program? We'd love to hear some of the highlights. Yes, of course. Um, so yeah, I work in the public programs department and we present all of our public facing events And so that can range from artist talks and performances to film screenings and poetry readings. Um, And these events are always to expand upon the exhibitions that are viewed and also create various entry points for folks to come and engage with the museum. And so this upcoming Wednesday, we have a really exciting event that's going to kind of wrap up a lot of our Black History Month events that we've been having throughout the month. Um, We're hosting a book launch and celebration for the book entitled The Black Yearbook by Adrian Burial. And this is a photography book that is exploring the joys and hardships and also truths of Black college students. Um, And it's through a a series of different portraits um, and dialogues and features of students and their experiences. Um, And the author will have the author, Adrian, here in person at the museum, and he'll be in conversation with uh, designer and artist George McCalman, who's also the author of Illustrated Black History, honoring the iconic and unseen and we so the George. two of them will be in conversation. Yeah, we love yeah, George. Yeah, we, we had George on this program, so it's a wonderful full circle. We're just about Absolutely. out of time, Nia, so I just wanted to ask, how can listeners come visit the museum in person? Yes, so we are open Wednesday through Sunday. Uh, Wednesday through Saturday, we're open 11 a.m. to 6 p.m., and Sunday we're open 12 to 5 p.m. And you can learn more about our um, upcoming programs, the Poets and Residence program, um, and other ways to engage by visiting moadsf.org. Well, that's perfect. Thank you so much, Nia McAllister, Senior Public Programs Manager for the Museum of African Diaspora, or MOAD. Thank you so much for coming on State of the Bay and talking about what's going on at your museum. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that's State of the Bay for this week. We hope you'll join us next Monday at 6 when we'll talk to award-winning landscape designer Christian Douglas about creating food-forward gardens. 
For more information about tonight's show, you can visit our State of the Bay page on KALW.org. And please remember to subscribe to the State of the Bay podcast wherever you listen so that you never miss an episode. And if you have any questions or comments about anything you heard tonight, just let us know. You can email us anytime. We're at stateofthebay at KALW.org. Tonight's show was produced by Katie Colley. It was engineered by David Kwan and D Minor was our board operator. A replay of today's Your Call is coming up next. I'm Ethan Elkind. Good night, and thanks so much for listening.